Hello, I'm Ed, and welcome to a highly unusual episode of the Electric Monks podcast. Last year, I made a pretty unexpected and somewhat accidental discovery. In Douglas Adams's archive at St John's College in Cambridge lies a script for a 1998 Dirk Gently television pilot. Unfortunately, it never came to fruition, and three years later, Douglas Adams sadly passed away. I wanted to find out more about the project, so with the help of the archive, we have not only tracked down the script, but reunited it with its original author. The man tasked with trying to adapt Dirt Gently to screen for the first time was award-winning comedy writer Kim Fuller, who was friends with Douglas. Douglas also left some notes in the script detailing his thoughts on it, which Kim had never seen before. It led to a conversation that was deeply fascinating, very funny, but at times quite surreal and poignant. To start us off, here's Kim giving a bit of background about his first TV writing gig on Not The Nine O'Clock News, where Kim's writing impressed the show's creator, John Lloyd. I saw Not The Nine O'Clock News. It was an antidote to the, the two Ronnies and all the, the innuendo sort of music hall stuff. Um, and it was modern and it was challenging and it was different. So I thought this speaks to my generation, you know, I was in my late 20s. So I started sending sketches off to that. And John was very charming. I mean, he was similar age to me. He was um, open to new ideas and open to new writing, which is how I was lucky enough to get in, in there. He had the same sense of humour, or rather I had the same sense of humour as, as him. He was very disciplined as well about sketches. I learnt a lot, particularly about writing for, for the screen, because I always wrote too many words, which is something we could come back to talking about Dirt Gently, because that was one of the issues I had with adapting, is that, that Douglas wrote a lot of words, especially when people speak. And I was really seeing how you pare down the dialogue in any script, and also the timing of, of, of the sketches, because it was a half-hour show, and there were probably 20-something sketches in there. So some were literally 15 seconds long, you know, quickies outside, you know, in the street or wherever. And some might be more longer, but two minutes was a long time in Sketchland. And it had to have pace, it had to move, it had to be funny, it had to be succinct. So I was, I was, I was on a massive learning curve, but in, in practical ways, it wasn't theoretical. It was me getting stuff on or not getting it on. But John was very encouraging and he was a good director. I saw, you know, he would talk to the actors and, he, and I'd see how he would modify the performance and how he'd say, well, you know, if you do it like this, it's funnier or do it like that or cut that. Or, and I, I, I've never been exposed to that. It's a bit, it's a bit like watching Lennon and McCartney write songs together and think, oh, right. oh I see, that's how you do it. <laughs> so it's like having a masterclass just for you, really. Yeah, and I think I absolutely agree that learning sort of on the job is one of the best ways, especially writing a sketch comedy where it's all very performance-based. It's got to be really mm. tight, like you say. And uh, yeah, great to hear about John Lloyd. Obviously, you know, very successful. Uh, even back then was really successful, but even more so now with QI and things like that. As it happens, one of John Lloyd's friends and collaborators over this was Douglas Adams. So am I right in thinking that this is about the time that you met Douglas for the first time, or was that a bit later? He was around the Not the Nine, and he was writing one of the writers. Well, there wasn't so much a team, but there were writers that had access. Um, and uh, I mean, Richard Curtis was one, and Richard Curtis was on there. That's where I met Richard. 
And I remember meeting Douglas, and he came into a, a meeting, and he'd done Hitchhiker. When was Hitchhiker's? Was it Hitchhiker's was, I think, 78, the yeah, first well, episode, done that. and then he had a full series the year after, I think. Yeah. So he was, and uh, John was involved in that. And that, he so was, John yeah. came from radio, and this was John's first TV, I think, I'm right in saying, his first TV project that he was... I think it was, yeah. Um, and Douglas was therefore part of a team that a sort of informal writing team that, that John had around him, including Richard, including Guy Jenkin and various other people. Kim, can I ask if you were a fan of Douglas before you met him? Because you, him and John are all sort of the same generation, the same kind of age. So I'm sort of interested to how you sort of viewed him at the time. Well, I thought it was great. I, I, t- I tell you what I, th- I honestly thought. I thought the book was fantastic. I read the book. And I liked the radio series, but I remember thinking it felt a little bit middle class. I, I didn't really like the voice of the, 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 the you know, the book. Uh, the Peter Jones. Sorry. Yeah, it was all right. It was just a little bit, I don't know, middle class sort of. It could be a bit I, snarky at times, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. And I, I felt it was a little ploddy, actually. The, the, uh, the best bits on the radio were, were the, um, and, and on the TV version, I think, were the, descriptions of the uh you know the technical descriptions which were animated in the main you know in the in the tv version um you know about the babel fish and all that i like that uh i, I like the kind of quirky extended logic of, of his writing and i thought that came over very well i think the weakness of it in my view i say far be it for me to, to to mention any weaknesses was the like the dialogue was a little bit clunky I thought it didn't sound naturalistic to me particularly and that's one of the reasons I suppose carrying that forward into my attempt to uh, adapt the dirt gently um, I felt that was one of the things that slightly hampered me I, I, I was always I always liked American comedy I liked the fluidness and the, and the colloquial way that Americans write dialogue very much more naturalistic lots of umming and ahrings I mean if you listen to Seinfeld or or um, Woody Allen, it's very street, very kind of how people speak. That was really what it, what I felt about it. But I loved the whole concept, and when the book came out, I, I devoured that. But yeah, he was, you know, even then he was, it was quite clear he was a bit of a genius, um, you know. So so meeting him in the context of doing a show, not the nine, something I'd never done before, I was definitely in awe in awe of him. For sure, apart from the fact he was six foot four or five, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, he was a tall man who cast a big shadow, that's for sure. Just after Not the Nine O'Clock, you started working on Three of a Kind with Tracy Ullman and Lenny Henry. So I was interested in your sort of re- working relationships with Tracy Ullman and Lenny Henry because you won awards with uh, Tracy Takes On, which you wrote and produced for. You got a cable ACE, I think, you and the producers. Having done Not the Nine, um, and having had a credit, screen credit, um, the BBC were developing another show. It started off called, being called Six of a Kind, and then it went to Three of a Kind because Paul Jackson, the producer, who produced The Young Ones and he was a really innovative producer of the, at the time, working at the BBC, he organised a meeting. Anybody who'd written anything for, for more or less any comedy, he um, invited them to a meeting. So I went along. So they introduced Lenny and Tracy. And what was interesting with Tracy is 
she hadn't quite committed to doing it because she was more an actress. She saw herself, and she was a very good actress, a theatre actress as well. And she'd done some TV dramas. And she said to me, I said, look, I'm interested in writing for you because I, I had a thing even then, I wanted to write for female characters. I, I won't say it was a political message that I was giving. It was more that I felt they were underwritten. I remember at uni talking to my friends and saying, well, Monty Python, you know, there are no women in it. Everyone's just going, oh, this is science, and that's, that's a woman. Yeah, that's there's like woman. the pepper pots where they all dress in drag, basically. Even drag. Douglas did that yeah. once when he was in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, anyway, to cut long story short, I said, oh, well, I'd be interested. And she said, oh, good. Well, I, you know, and she went to Paul and said, oh, this Kim Fuller, you know, he's, he's written for not not be interested in the writing. So Paul said, oh, well, good. Well, we'll when we have a meeting, I'll call you in. So, so I sort of circumvented the process. I was lucky to find two, I think, of the best character comedy actors around, both of whom had a very long career. So then I started writing for Lenny specifically and for Tracy. I wrote monologues for her. I was closer to them as actors than I was with the not the nine cast because I never really sat in on rehearsals um, that much for Not The Nine, we'd do read-throughs and so on. But this was me being hands-on and Tracy coming up to me and saying, I've got this voice, you know, and she's, she's a character and she talks like this and she'd do the voice, but she wouldn't have any material. And I said, well, I, okay, I get it. I'll write, you know, I'll write something for that. So Kim has told us a bit about how he got his start in TV, but it's the late 90s where things get really interesting. In 1997, Kim wrote the film Spice World, starring the British pop group The Spice Girls. Critics eviscerated it, but it was a massive box office hit when it released in December. Shortly afterwards, TV producer Jane Root got in touch with Kim, telling him that Douglas would like to meet up with him to discuss adapting his Dirk Gently novels for the first time. Kim takes up the story. I'd met uh, Douglas um, several times over the years. Um, I think I've been to his house at a party. and We were in that environment that you just bumped into people at various parties and it sounds sort of show busy thing but it wasn't really it was just it was quite a tight well, Douglas thing. parties are quite infamous especially some of the ones he held in like Islington and stuff like that yeah well his flat he had some amazing he had uh, I think he had an old-fashioned petrol pump from you know like an American petrol pump which I I, I I love stuff like that and buy architectural salvage stuff but anyway I'd met him I'd spoken to him and we were you know we'd always say hi if we were you know anywhere socially I don't know how it happened that the, they brought me in, but I know that he was looking for somebody to, to take this on. And uh, Jane Root, had, I think they'd talked to other writers. And I think he liked some aspect of what I did. I wasn't really easily classifiable as a writer. I'd done lots of, as you say, I mean, I'd done films and sketches. And well, you've done quite a, a big variety of work. So I think on some level, he must have respected your, well, not only the workload you take on, but also your versatility as a writer. Yeah, yeah, and I'd done a show which we hadn't we haven't mentioned, but it was called "The Staggering Stories of Ferdinand de Barbos," and it it was taking old movies and different unrelated clips of film and putting them all together into a into a story, twenty minute series we did for BBC Two, and it was quite a cult and weird, and it was one of those things that was never nominated for any award because it was a bit too out there. That was one thing that I think did well for me. And I said, look, it's a pretty big thing to do. And I, I said, I'm not sure, does he really want it? Obviously wants it to be done. She said, well, he's not sure, but he'd like to meet you. So to properly to have a chat. So I met him, we went out somewhere 
And I said to him, no, Douglas, you're not going to like it. Whatever I do, I said, you're not, because I know, you know, your writing is brilliant and, uh, you know, and uh, I've been a massive fan and I'm more than honoured, as it were, to, to, to be asked to do it. But I said, it's a, it's a pretty impossible task in a way because the form of the book is very discursive. It's very, you know, it's very you, I said. I didn't say it exactly like this. I'm just praising what my attitude was. And he said, no, 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 I, you know, I, I want it to be done, you know, because he was very intense in his writing periods. And I remember John Lloyd saying, you know, he'd take forever and he'd put things off and he'd more or less have to be locked in a room. Yeah, I, I've heard the locked in the hotel room to finish yeah, book stories. <laughs> that's right. And when he went to LA to, 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 to get um, Hitchhikers off, he, I think he really didn't enjoy that experience, you know, of having producers and executives on it on his back all the time you know mm. so I knew all that so I think he was at the point where he wanted to do something with it but couldn't find the time himself or it was a very different skill actually that he needed to do that I talked him through and I said I, I get it I get the character I get the the weirdness of the world but I'll have to change it I said because it's not shootable as it is there's not enough dialogue uh well there is dialogue but it's not in the conversational way that it needs to be for a, a sitcom so as it were which is what essentially was, was happening with it and he he got all that but anyway, the thing is we got on really well and we chatted and um, and we we laughed and he was very generous you know and so i left and said listen I, i'd be more than happy to do it given what you've said and he said look I don't, i'm not going to be micromanaging and Jane Root said, look, we've got, ultimately, we've got authority over, over the script at the end, because in other words, I said, you know, you're not going to take it away and then spend, you know, years fumbling around with it. He said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get it. Anyway, so then she phoned, phoned up some days later, said, oh, you liked the meeting, and you'd like you to do it. So I was faced with the, the, the task, you know, and I, I, I really wanted to, to do a good job on it, because it would be great or anything else kudos to be able to say you know well you know work with Douglas and we worked, reworked his novel into a very successful show my um, remit was really to do the half hour format for want of a better word in a, in a sitcom but single camera um, half hour really not a studio laugh track show and I understood all that. I'd done that. This is what Red Dwarf was, you know. Then, then I just em embarked on it, you know, and I read the book several times. I mean, this was a long time ago, you know. I talked to him, because I'd read it before I met him, and I talked to him about particularly the axis of, of the ideas within it. Because when you're adapting um, books, and I've, I've, I've done a couple of others in, in, in since then, but you need to translate all the obviously the setups and the descriptions and the discursive elements of, of of the book, particularly when it's funny, you've got to unpick all that and try and express it in in essentially dialogue and pictures. I said I'm not a fan of a voiceover because that's obviously the way to go. A lot of people, while well, you're adapting a book, will you have a voiceover? So the voiceover drops in, and I didn't want to do that because it's very, it's not filmic and. Just a little bit ploddy, I felt. So the big issue with, with it was how to extrapolate these pieces of genius writing into people talking to each other and moving around. So one decision I made was that the, the assistant 
Janice in the book and in what I did was Janice would be more prominent in the show, you know, because ah, that's really interesting here because that's sort of what the radio series did later on as well. They had a big role because they had Olivia Coleman playing Janice and she oh, had right. a much bigger okay. role in that series uh, as well. But anyway, right. go on. I didn't want to interrupt. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I haven't heard the radio series actually, but I thought, well, because he's got to have somebody to talk to and they, he's got to have somebody to talk to who's actually working on a problem that he's, they're both trying to solve. And that was one of my first decisions. So that in the book, I've got it here, um, when he meets, because it wasn't very, he's not very descriptive of... Um, uh, yeah, Janice is sort characters. of in the background a lot of the time. They don't really have her leave the office all that much. No, no, exactly. And I mean, you know, when he meets her, it just says... Um, when Macduff meets her, you mean? Yeah, when, when he goes into the office and it says, and he describes her, and he says, a youngish, plump-faced girl in a cheap blue coat was pulling sticks of makeup and boxes of Kleenex out of her desk drawer and thrusting them into her bag. Is this a detective agency? Richard asked tentatively. The girl nodded, biting her lip, blah, blah, blah. And is Mr. Gently in? I mean, he doesn't say who she is. He doesn't give her a name. He doesn't really give her much of a description. Perhaps she's a bit plump. And, um, you know, and there's not much to go on. And then, and then she kind of, as you know, disappears and then comes back. So that was a major... She's coming back in the hope that she will get paid one day. Yes, yes. that's right, because she's sacked, isn't she, at the beginning? Well, no, she, she decides to leave. To decides to leave, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. And they have this, this funny, you're fired, good, blah, blah. So just for your listeners, as it were, I've got this, the first time I, you, you kindly helped me get hold of a script, which I hadn't seen for 35 years, whatever it is. It was 30, 23, I think. Well, yeah, it was 23 years ago. So, years ago. so I'm, and I'm reading it again and looking at Douglas's notes along the side of it. The thing is, I wrote this, I delivered it. I did two or three drives, I delivered it. And I didn't hear anything for ages, which is always a, is always a bad sign in the... No, I'm sorry we got back to you so late, Kim. I was like, like I said, I was like two at the time this was happening. <laughs> I know. It's the first time I've waited 23 years to get notes on my script, you know. And then I heard from um, from um, Jane Root. They said, well, we're not sure about it. He's not going to do it at the moment. I said, he didn't like it, did he? Come on. And she said, not really, no. And I said, well, fair enough. But I tried, you know. Mm. And I wasn't, I didn't ever have a follow-up meeting with him about why he didn't like it specifically. But I mean, I can see now. I think what happened really in that process was from what I subsequently found out is he lost confidence in it as a project to be transcribed to another medium. I think that's what he was worried about. Yeah, that was the thing for many years. He was like, the dirt gently is unadaptable for any medium other than yeah. books that it started in. And that was one of the reasons why Arvin Ethan David sort of got the reply, reply back that he did when he tried to do the play, which was, uh, we don't think it's adaptable, but you're welcome to try. And he did. And uh, Douglas sort of said that he did change his mind slightly, which is, I think, what might have led to him trying to do this series in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I understand why um, he'd want to do it in some other form, because, you know, you've got a wider audience, you might find other things that, you know, you could reinvent new stories. I mean, it's not quite as onerous as taking on an entire new novel, if you wanted to write a sequel. So all those reasons, I think, were there. What, what I probably demonstrated was that it's very hard to adapt. I don't, I'm trying to think what I could have done to make it more acceptable. I think the, the way I could have done it is if I'd been in a room with him, because I work well in a room, I like a room. I, if I'd have had a, a creative session with him before we'd started, 
having done a bit of work and thrown the ideas around and then him say, no, 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 that's terrible or whatever, whatever. If I think if I'd had that, it would have been much easier. So I didn't really, I was writing blind, but from the basis of having one conversation with him before. So that was what I found tricky. I think it can work actually, but what you lose is a lot of the the background stuff, as as always, you lose that uh, that amazing imagination and the pulling together of all these different strands. Mm. And the other thing was, I I wasn't adapting this book as such because I didn't. It was an original story, wasn't it? Exactly, it was an original story. And I I said I'm not I can't adapt that with the you know the monk and everything, <laughs> all that. It's too long for a start, and it's it's not within the remit. It's not. The budget is not to kind of create electric monks. Well, even the play cut out the electric monk. You hear the horse at one point, but they never see the monk. So, monk, <laughs> so no. you were quite sensible on that, I think. Well, I just said, look, if we're going to do this. It's it's going to have a rolling um, episodic quality to it, which needs to, which means that you can have the central characters, and each week there's another um, investigation. I saw it a bit like Moonlighting. Remember that series, Moonlighting, with. Bruce Willis years ago. Anyway, it was uh, a very bad, yeah. sort of male female detective agency. So anyway, I just did what I felt worked. Now, interesting, if you want some, because you haven't seen this, have you? What I'd like to do subsequently is get is record some of it because I think it might be enlightening to actually record an episode which he's read and noted. This is the problem. I mean, for example, he, he puts notes saying sitcom, sitcom line as a disparaging term. But the thing about writing comedy is there is a sitcom rhythm. There is a comedic rhythm. It underlies pretty much everything. And I was very aware of sitcom, as it were, in inverted commas, being a bit naff, you know, and having the punchline always there. There were a lot of comedies that veered away from that. And um, in, in particularly The Office stayed away from that kind of punchline-y delivery. But then again, it came back in other forms like not going out. I mean, say not going out is just feed lines for um, the lead actor to just do the gag, you know? Um, but in between, there's a there's comedy which doesn't do that, but there's still a, a joke at the end of a certain number of, you know, toing and froing of dialogue. And what I was trying to do was to get the relationship between Dirk as a character and Janice as a kind of love-hate sort of toing and froing witty a bit like those old movies where they the two sort of an odd couple kind of thing exactly like an odd couple yeah like that within the um terms of, of a show you've got to explain the story you've got to explain who these people are because people's never seen them before so there's a sequence on page three which i had to put in somehow janice says um because there's no work that's the joke there's no yeah. work he's throwing there never is <laughs> don't take it out on me she says just because there isn't any work coming and it's not my fault why didn't you have any clients? I don't know. Maybe you're losing your touch. And then he goes, "I beg your pardon. I'll have you. I'll have you know that I'm probably, almost certainly, the most successful holistic detective in the country." Which I thought was quite funny because he's obviously the only one. <laughs> yeah. Which she says, "You're the only holistic detective in the country." Exactly. Remember Mrs. What's the name's dog? What was it? A Chihuahua missing for a week. I found it down a rabbit burrow. And he bows. Thank you. Says it was dead. That's even more remarkable. Who in the world would have thought of looking for a dead chihuahua down a rabbit hole? Then she goes, but it was dead. This particular section I was reading is, is, is really just setting up who they were. And the characters usually have to explain that uh, to the audience in some way. And it's a bit of an obvious 
thing when he's telling people, essentially he's saying out loud what he already knows, which is mm. ideally you don't really do that. But sometimes you have to do that because the audience doesn't know who they are other, unless they say something, right? This, this banter of, of saying, I'm the most successful holistic detective in the country. Well, you're the only holistic detective and all that. And well, Dirk is a bit of a show-off, even in the books of it. So that does fit his yeah, character. But, but then he says, his note is, oh gosh, I know we have to go through all this stuff, but does it have to be so A, jokey, and B, leaden? <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So he says, so far, it's like listening to Richard Clayderman playing Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you knew who Richard Clayderman was, is not a compliment. Mm. Uh, he's talking about the fact that in the script, you're having to sort of, in a funny way, hopefully, obviously not in this case, get the audience familiar with what their relationship is, you know? No. To be fair, that does sound like the sort of thing that I would try and write. So I, I thought it was fine. <laughs> so I think yeah, well. maybe has more discerning tastes. It's, well, it's interesting, so comparing it to the sort of things that came in the other TV adaptations and how obviously they didn't have what you had where Douglas was uh, around to sort of react to them. But, uh, yeah, what I was trying to do with Dirk is his, I suppose, headline skill is the interconnectedness of things, right? That's what Dirk does. He's got a sort of psychic ability as well. Mm. But his idea is that everything is connected in some way. But in the book, he vigorously denies being psychic in order to yes, yes. convince well, people that he is. Yeah. So what I took on board was the notion of the interconnectedness of things. So my idea for the, a storyline was, and for him as a character, um, I don't know if I pitched this to, to Douglas, but, I'm, uh, but anyway, that was how I... I approached it was here's a detective he is, has to find things out he has to solve problems crimes whatever and he does it in a very unique and distinctive and original way that was the, that was what I had to get over in the book it's complicated with this time travel business you know there's all sorts of elements going on there but to pare it down my comedic concept for him was that in order to find something out he starts somewhere knowing that with all these coincidences and with all this interconnectedness, eventually he will arrive at the solution of what's going on. Mm. He won't put all the evidence out like, and put it on the wall like normal detectives do. He will follow something and see where it goes. So that's what he's doing, following the interconnectedness. And in this case, because they didn't have a crime to solve, because no one's come to them and said, can you solve this? He's gone out to find a crime in order to solve it. That's what he's doing. So he goes to the restaurant and he sees this guy in the corner and he realises that that guy is involved in a crime that is about to happen, but he doesn't know it. That was the comedic angle. So he goes there with Janice. He, he sees a guy in the corner, a designer-dressed guy sitting at a table um, who's obviously well-off and who's obviously, you know, flamboyant. And the, uh, trendy was, late 90s kind of guy. Trendy late 90s place, yeah. He says, who's that guy over there? And so what he does, he goes over and sits down and he, he says he says to him... Yeah, my immediate question here is how can Dirk afford to pay to go to this restaurant? <laughs> I imagine he gets Janice to pay. <laughs> but uh, that's yeah, well, by the by. Yeah, well, that's by the by. But he's just... Actually, I don't know if I deal with that anyway. But it's a, I think when we do it, we'll... Um, I'll, I'll figure that out. So when the waiter comes in, 
He says, um, who's that? And the waiter says, I always get nervous when the boss is in. And Dirk says, what, you mean him? He says, yes, Peter Wallace. He owns this place and just about everything else in the street. Dirk says, oh, I don't think he noticed. Oh, he doesn't. He noticed. He doesn't miss a thing. I'll be back with the mustard, even if I've got my job. Anyway, Dirk then says, this guy's obviously got a crime about to happen that I'm, I can solve. So he goes over to them and he says, um, what do you want? He says, this may come as a shock, but I think your life could be in danger. He said, what are you talking about? He says, you're a successful businessman, probably worth a few million. Hostile takeovers, purges of directors. You're pretty ruthless, I would imagine. Ruthless men make enemies. That makes you a target. Targets get things aimed at them. I could help you find who's doing the aiming. So he's just essentially... And then the guy... He a case here. <laughs> yeah, he's got a case. And then the, then the guy grabs him and says, says who is it, Anderson? To a Dirk sort of, well, I'm not sure yet. Or Turner, is it? I knew it was Turner. Is it Turner? It's Turner, isn't it? He said, listen, why don't you come around the office tomorrow and we'll talk about it? How do I know I can trust you? How do I know that you're not trying to get at me just like all the others? You don't. But on the other hand, I could be your only friend in a hostile world. And he said, I'll be there at seven o'clock. Dirk says, my clock refuses to ring before nine. Make it ten. Okay, right. So, so what he's done in that, Dirk has now got a, a victim who doesn't know how he's going to be a victim. <laughs> and he's trying to solve it before he becomes a victim. Yeah. I like how manipulative Dirk is there as well, because that's totally in fitting with the books, particularly. Yes. Well, what's interesting in, in Douglas's note is that just the lead up with that, he, he goes to Wallace, says, Mr. Wallace, and Wallace says, yes. Dirk Gently, holistic detective, may I? He sits down without waiting for an answer. And Wallace says, what is this, a joke? He says, no, sadly, it's a career, but it does have its lighter moments. Well, I've got a tick for that. There's, there's oh. my tick. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Douglas Adams ticks, namely, good joke. And then Wallace says, what do you want? He says, this may come as a bit of a shock to you, but I think your life's in danger. So then Wallace's hands tremble as he lights a cigarette, tries to laugh, and it's unconvincing. And then Douglas's note, which is a good note and absolutely right, he says, too quick. And it's right, because I should have put the guy's you know, pushing back against that and saying, what do you mean? How do you know that? Well, it's my business to know that. Really? Are you really saying that? Do you see what I mean? We needed, we need a few more lines to make that transition. Um, but it's just that the yeah, guy... It needs to be a bit more believable, this slippery more slope believable. of why he exactly. ends up going for what Dirk wants. Basically. Exactly. And, and, and he's right in that. Then you'd get the turnaround, the character's turnaround from being a little bit, who are you, into, oh my God, he's right. I am in danger. That needs to be gradual, more gradual. And when, when he's got, um, is it Turner, is it Turner, isn't it? He's put a line saying unconvincing. Again, if you're in a dialogue with a writer, we'd sit down and go, well, that is unconvincing. Well, how would you fix it? You know. But the principle, obviously, he's liked the principle. And, and, and that's what I'm talking about, is trying to bring the complexity of Dirk's mind into a dialogue scene in a restaurant where he's, you know, interacting with a third party and with his partner, so-called, uh, you know, Janice. So at the end of page 10, he's now got a case, he's now got a, somebody who's going to come round, you know, employ him to solve something that hasn't happened yet. So that was a kind of conceit that I was working with. Douglas's notes are, are good. Um, some of it he doesn't like. Some of the lines particularly, but he suddenly, he's, you know, little bracket says sitcom, sitcom. 
But that to me is, 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 is a positive because it means there's a joke there. But then he says, oh, there's, a, there's another joke. He says, old gag. Wallace, the, the, the main character that's Wallace's victim says, here's a list of suspects, people I know who'd love to see me dead. And Dirk says, a list? This is an encyclopedia. And he's written sitcom by the side of it. But it's because it's too gaggy. That's what he's objecting to. But you know, that's always saw Dirk Jokely as a slightly more serious tone than something like Hitchhikers. Maybe, maybe that's why he feels the Hitchhikers is the sitcom, and Dirk Jokely is more of the drama with more comedic elements. And maybe that's yes. what the difference is. I think so. Yes, that I feel would would summarize his general comments. On the other hand, he likes jokes. There's another joke. He's ticked. There's several. He's ticked. Miriam, oh, who's that? Miriam. There's a joke that says, I'm, I'm sorry, I must have my daily dose of soap opera. It may be trashy, but it's not as trashy as real life. Um, and, and that gets a tick. So he's, he's obviously, you know, read it carefully, thought about it. Oh, and then, oh, you see, this is, this is another bit, which is, this is the nub of what he objected to. I think I gave her too much of a role in his... In Janice. His, uh, yeah, yeah, Janice. Because... She starts saying she wants to be involved. What's the transition? She says, we've got to find the man in the car. She, and he Dirk says, what was that? She said, we've got to, since when have you been in, least interested in detective work? And she goes, since just now. And she, he goes, well, what's brought about this massive change of heart? Then she, she says, and I've indicated, blurting out her well-thought-out logic. Well, if you get arrested for attempted murder, I won't have a job. And although this isn't much of a job, it's better than nothing. At least I'm getting paid, even if it's only now and again. And anyway, two people on the case has got to be better than one, hasn't it? And Dirk goes, not necessarily. So Douglas's note is, oh, no, they're going to be partners. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is he thinking he doesn't want any possibility of romantic chemistry between Dirk and Jack? I, th- I think so, maybe, you know, I think yeah. so. And, and I think he pushes against the idea of a buddy comedy with another person. Um, particularly her. There's two elements in his comments. One is the jokes, some of which he thinks are too ba-boom, you know, or too kind of punchline-y. The setup's too obvious. Yeah, yeah, the setup's yeah, yeah, so, so. And the other is, 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 you know, he's obviously got what Dirk is as a character in, in his mind. And there's another note which says, Dirk wouldn't say this because blah, 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 you know. But I think... Um, well, the thing is, he's even though it's based on you know the books, it, it's not it's your version of that character. So there's an extent to which a we don't know if this happened, who would end up being cast as Dirk. So yeah, I do wonder. There's a sort of sense of well, Dirk from the books wouldn't have said this, yes, but you've got to allow for it being a different medium and there being a bit of leeway to take the character in a slightly different direction if he's going to be part of a sitcom where he's just going to be in these sort of different cases each week it's going to be different to the book where he only has to exist for that one case or yes that's tea right time just that and it's interesting i don't know if you've read tea time uh, the sequel to the original book but there's uh no. they do pick up what uh with janice that basically before the story is set because it's set some months after uh detective agency so it doesn't really have any continuing threads but janice leaves to work at the uh, check-in desk at uh, Heathrow airport Oh, ends yeah. up being confronted by the God of Thunder, Norse God 4, who ends up uh, causing a big explosion at Heathrow, which is a big part of the plot. 
and yeah. turning Janice into, I think, a drinks machine by accident. Oh, right. She spends a lot of the novel as a drinks machine and I think only gets turned back at the very, very end. <laughs> and is a bit, annoyed with, a bit annoyed that even after escaping Dirk, that, ha that happens to her. But that's, and this was 1988 that he wrote Tea Time, but it's interesting that Douglas followed it up with Janice eventually getting sick of Dirk and, and, and trying to leave. I see, right. Is there much is there much dialogue for her then in those Not in, in, in tea time? There's a bit when she's at the checkout desk where she talks to four, and there's also the one of the what they do in tea time is they sort of have a ca American journalist lady called uh, Kate Chester, who's a great character by the way. She's like sort of the co-protagonist with Dirk, and they're sort of investigating independently of one another, and they literally crash into each other about three quarters of the way through the novel I because see. Dirk is using his method of zen navigation which i'm not sure if you've heard of which is follow someone who looks like they know where they're going and he uh, bumps into kate and kate explains like what she's been doing he's like oh well it's funny you mentioned that because i've been do doing this and this might have something to do with that right right <laughs> so I'm, I'm summarizing very heavily tea time yeah it's very good well um, i've used a bit of that i mean i did put that in because then what happens is he sees a red car and a red car comes and nearly hits them she's saying it's nothing to do with you know the case but he said well obviously it must be because otherwise why is it in my orbit as it were why is it around me um and so that's what they do in the story he then sees another red car and he follows that car even though it's nothing to do with the other the first car so it, it, it's it's that kind of idea i was trying to get over that if you're looking for somebody with a you know with a blue hat and somebody has got a blue hat, it's obviously not them. You just follow that blue hat. At some point, the laws of interconnected logic <laughs> state that, that he will meet another guy with a blue hat sometime who might be the one, you, know, you see. I just think it's quite interesting that I've, I'm, I'm reading notes on a script from someone who's died on an adaptation of one of his books and, and a script which I've never, haven't read for all this time. It's quite... There's a, there's a, it's quite a surreal thing, isn't it? I it imagine. is. There's kind of an interconnectedness thing going on there for a start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, I've put it together. Maybe <laughs> for, but, for a lot of the audience listening to this, and for me, we're discovering this for the first time. But for you, this is sort of rediscovering. I'd, I'd definitely make a better job of it now. I mean, I've had a lot. Well, you've learned from that experience, though, surely. Yeah. Well, I did a lot of sitcom after this, a lot of half-hour narrative after this, you see. So I, I think this might, as I said to you, I think this is probably only the third or third third or fourth half-hour script I'd written at the time, you see. So I, I'd learned the dynamics of, of it. But, you know, I was doing a two-fold thing. One is trying to write a script that made sense, that had a plot and a story and characters. And the other was that I'm trying to be faithful to a brilliant, brilliant concept that wasn't my own um, and, and trying to keep the integrity of that. Obviously, I failed on that, on that front. But um, I know I definitely do a much better job. Even looking at my own stuff, I, I'm thinking, you know, that that could really be finessed better and da 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 da. I reckon if he was, if Douglas was around now, I could rewrite that and he'd be happy with it somehow. That's what I think. But um, I mean, if you really wanted to, uh, I could. <laughs> I have talked to you before about trying to get in contact with Arvind Ethan David and trying to. And I'm sort of all for. If, even before I heard anything about the script, I was all for making this a. a a somewhat official video because at least it's had some feedback from Douglas and of course yourself as a you know well-regarded writer in your own right uh, well-regarded writer in your own right where did that, that come from I'd say after <laughs> <laughs> but uh 
I, I definitely think um, there's a there's a place for for this version of the character. I'm I'm interested who when you were doing this dialogue for Dirk and and Janice, who did you picture at the time, and who do you picture now maybe playing them? Well, it's interesting. I I, I did used to think of, of certain characters in in a script when I was writing, um, but I stopped doing that because I, I maybe you're disappointed because you won't be able to get them nine times out of ten, and then it also skews your um, the way you write. The, the other thing is, female characters are tricky in the sense that, you know, I'm a man and, I'm, and I learned a lot about writing for women through Tracy because Tracy was so in, in, instinctive about a character portrayal and what made them funny. I, I would go into the Janice character. I'm not sure that, looking at what Douglas wrote, I'm not sure that he saw her as a funny character, but but she's, a, she's a there as a support character, but not really defined in her own right. I didn't see the Olivia Coleman. It's a radio series, yeah, wasn't it? Interpretation of it, yeah. yeah. But um but I would um I would find a, a you know a, a really top well Olivia Coleman would be great. But I'd find a younger somebody in their maybe in their twenties, a bit of a curveball character I'd put into that because I would say that you know um there's an element of a slightly a Miss Moneypenny thing about her in the book feels a little bit like that kind of, dare I say, stereotype, slightly scatty person in, you know, as a secretary. I would make her much more punchy and make her more, I might make her maybe like a goth or something, or maybe just something a bit left field. Because if somebody's working for Dirk and has been for a while, they might inhabit or be able to deal with that weird thought process. And it might make an interesting combination of characters where uh, rather than there being a straight man, a straight woman and a, and a, and a quirky lead character, I'd, I'd try and make her come to the party with a bit more going on, you know, um, comedically. That's what I might try and do and visualise her. You know, why couldn't she be a black girl? Why couldn't she be Asian? Why couldn't she be... I'm not saying that in terms of diversity per se. I'm just saying... You know, this is this is 2021, and uh, I think you could find an angle. Um, you know, maybe you find you know a, a female character that's into the occult, or is into horror movies, or is I don't know. I'm just you know, I'd open it up is what I'm saying. I agree. There's a lot of uh, grey area with Janet, and in our representation front, a lot of Douglas's books don't really have many black people in them. I think even the BBC4 series had like one black character in it and the American series actually was a lot better for representation because Dirk even had a a black sidekick in that. I think, funnily enough, her name was actually Farrah Black, I think, the name of the character. She was played by an American actress called Jada Shett and uh, it was sort of her and Todd were sort of the two main assistants that Dirk had in that that kind of series, the Samuel Barnett series. But uh, but anyway... Well, he think, didn't like women much either. Yeah, that was that was what I was one of the things I felt about uh, Kate Sheshka in Tea Time that that was sort of his attempt to sort of redress the balance because she's a very well realized sort of character because she's a sort of point of view character for a lot of that book. Yeah, sort of... but in, in even in Hitchhikers, there was all men, wasn't it? Really, were there any females in that? Well, like, there was Trillian or Trisha McMillan or whatever her name was. Oh yeah, yeah. and. Oh, there was Fenchurch, of course. Yeah, the Arthur's love interest in some of the later books, uh, which was, I think, another attempt because that was sort of just before or just after, I think, he wrote the Dirt Gently novels. 
before we move on from dirt check i think big thank you to dr adam crevers who took the time and effort to scan that to you and was very kind and gave me a lot of information myself the, the thing that he told me was um i can't show you the script because kim is still alive and i thought <laughs> well no sense it'd be a bit rude just to wait for kim to pass away that's not very nice so i thought i would it'd be way nicer to hear what you actually had to say about it yeah also would take a lot less time Yes, no, well, that's well. I'm grateful to him and to you actually for this because I, I really, it's been, you know, something else to talk about and, and a script which essentially, I mean, I've been through all my floppy drives and the, my zip drives and everything. And I haven't found it on, but, but to 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 have it in front of me is is, a, is great. So I mean, I'm thanks to you and to the doctor to, to Carruthers, isn't it? Did you yeah, say? Dr. Carruthers. Is it right? Like it's like a sitcom character. <laughs> so maybe, maybe in a redraft, we could rewrite one of the yes. murder suspects. Or I mean, Dr. Carruthers, <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's part of my story as well, which is which I didn't really know. And seeing his handwriting on it, it's amazing too, you know. Yeah, and it's great that we can sort of, I guess, update the old Wikipedia page and sort of we can write a whole thing about this a made a 1998 Dirk Gently script. It'll be part of, even though, you know, obviously it didn't turn out the way it's intended, it has, you know, shown up and it's sort of yours again and you can do what you like with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, well, well next time we'll see if we can recreate it somehow if you want, if you fancy. Ooh, be, certainly. Right. I, I can I can imagine a lot of people would love to voice it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, we should have a go, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be all for that. So there you have it, the incredible tale of the unmade 1998 Dirt Gently TV series from the man who wrote it himself all those years ago. What struck me was how similar some of Kim's ideas were to those seen in later radio and TV adaptations of the books, but also how frank and honest Kim was about some of the script's shortcomings that Douglas himself had pointed out. And although it took 23 years to reach Kim, clearly that feedback hasn't gone to waste, because whilst he is still a very busy writer today, Kim did seem interested in revisiting the script and turning it into an audio drama, which is a very tantalising prospect. Watch this space. A big thank you is due to Kim and his agent, Nick Ransford Hadley, for letting me get in contact with him in the first place, and of course to Dr Adam Crubbers from the St John's Archive in Cambridge. It's also worth pointing out that we are not the only people who have been digging around Douglas's archive recently. Kevin John Davies' book 42, The Wildly Improbable Ideas of Douglas Adams, did achieve its funding goals and is set for publication in 2023, and is going to use a lot of unpublished material from the archive written by Douglas. Now that's not all from Kim. If you enjoyed this episode, then you'll definitely want to listen to part two of my interview with him, where Kim told me all sorts of crazy anecdotes from his career, from witnessing the birth of The Simpsons to Sir Roger Moore being peed on by a small piglet. Kim has got some truly unbelievable stories that are well worth listening to. But for now, that's all we've got time for. Be sure to visit our website, dirtgentlypodcast.wordpress.com, and drop us an email, or you can contact me on Twitter via the handle at Edward J. Hunter. Happy Towel Day, everyone. 